0: would have asked me uh, in the very earliest days of my time in ministry, hey, would you rather have a wedding or a funeral? I would have said, oh, give me the wedding. Funerals are so sad, give me the wedding. Um, And then, you know, like two bridezillas later, I learned, oh, no, 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 give me the funeral. I don't know that there's a better opportunity anywhere to talk about the gospel in all of its direct power than at the moment in which we reflect on someone's Exit from this world and transition into the kingdom of heaven. Almost all of those work the same way. I get a call. Someone has passed. Maybe we knew that it was coming and maybe we didn't. And we set up an appointment and I make a time to go over to the family and I want to hear stories. I want to hear what they were like. What did they love? Uh, What funny things did they do? Families love sharing those stories. What was most important to them? Who was closest to them And for the believers especially, show me their Bible, worn out, written all over. Tell me what hymns that they loved. What passages of Scripture were most important to them? And in the midst of that conversation, we start putting together an order of service. Learning the kinds of things that they would want told as followers of Jesus Christ. Not just about their lives, but maybe more importantly about who the God that they loved who he is and what he's done in their life and throughout the life of the faithful as I got ready for this week's sermon here in Genesis 49 and 50 I felt like I was sitting down with the family and listening to them as we planned Jacob's funeral and that's where we start here in Genesis 49 starting in verse 28 Jacob is about to die, and he is going to share an awful lot of spiritual fatherly advice here near the end, and then we're going to get to witness his burial back in the land of Canaan. It's dramatic. Many years have passed, uh, nearly 20, since this family made their way down to Goshen in Egypt, and... While so many things have been resolved, there's still underlying tension, the likes of which we haven't seen in many years. Funerals have a way of exacerbating fears and bringing out the tension beneath the surface. In the drama of a funeral, old visceral memories are resurrected. Old fears are laid bare and old hopes are rekindled. But in the midst of all of that, we find that this is a story of faith. For weeks, we have been talking about God's sovereignty and God's providence. And this week, we see the fruit of all of God's intervention and all of God's design in history. He hasn't just fed a starving nation. He hasn't just mended a broken family. He hasn't just secured the promise that was made to Abraham's sons to be a nation forever and ever. God has also been doing something else. He has been in the midst of one calamity after another. He's been working in Jacob's life and again in Joseph's to build them into men of faith. God has done all of these remarkable things on a worldwide stage, but in the hearts of two men, he has done maybe his most incredible work. He has engineered within them an unwavering, unswerving, unquestioning faith in the God of Israel. And the tools that he's used to do that have been one calamity after another. And no one in this room is able to read this story and escape this conclusion. That maybe in the calamities of my own life, God is also working just like he did in Jacob's life and just like he did in Joseph's life to build in me a greater and more persevering faith. He might alter the course of history by his providence. He may apply his sovereignty to change the course of human events. But he is also doing an extraordinary work right inside of your head and right inside of your heart to build you into faithful servants of him. This is the story of the faithfulness of Jacob and the faithfulness of Joseph that God has built within them through the calamities of their lives. Genesis 49, starting in verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. We saw those enumerated last week. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable for him. And then he commanded them. You're going to see that word used twice here in this passage. Jacob is in full patriarchal form, laying out some commands here, not only in 29, but again in 33. Then he commanded them, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. What people? Isn't he with his people? All of his sons are gathered around? Well, we can sense here Jacob's coming death. He's not talking about the people in the room. He's talking about the people who are with the Lord. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in a cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites, and when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet, which is an idiom there for death. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Not only is Jacob taking charge as he levels these commands, Jacob is also doing an extraordinary thing that if we're not careful, we might miss. Jacob is acting like a man of faith. A man of resolve a man who after trying to scheme his entire life to forge his own destiny by his own plans and his own agenda now he's come to the very end of it and he's saying you know what (laughs) lord it's your plan it's your agenda it's your providence jacob is fully on board Uh, you'll see something interesting that's happening here, and it's really about who he's buried with. Now, you'll remember that Jacob had two wives. There was the wife that he loved. What was her name? Rachel. Rachel. And there was a wife before Rachel, Rachel's sister. What was her name? Leah. Did he love Leah? No. So go ahead and take a look again Uh, There in verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah. Who is Sarah? His wife. And and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Bury me there. Why in the world would Jacob want to be buried next to Leah? You'll see if you look closely there, he doesn't even have the heart to give her the same nomenclature that he gives to abraham's bride and to isaac's bride he doesn't even call leah my wife it's just plain old leah so why does he want to be buried next to leah it's because in large measure jacob has already understood that he is a part of a bigger story it's not just about him it's about going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and events that happened hundreds of years earlier. It's about God coming down to a man named Abram who lived in a faraway land. And he said, Abram, I have chosen you of all the people on the earth, and I'm going to lead you to a land, the land that they would be buried in, a land called Canaan. I'm going to lead you to that land, and I'm going to give you this land to possess through your family line forever. Forever and I'm going to give you children. Old Abram, married to old Sarah, your wife, you're going to have kids, and not just a couple of kids. Uh, there, There will be no amount of scrunching that will allow all of them to get into the big family picture at the reunion. They're going to be like the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you a nation's worth of sons to fill it, and I'm going to bless you. And all the people who curse you, I'm going to curse them. I'm going to elevate you above all the nations on the earth, not because you are greater or grander than all the rest, but because you are littler, and I just chose, and that's part of sovereignty. God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, just chooses in ways that we, with our limited minds, cannot always understand. And this story is handed down by faith to Isaac, And this story is handed down somewhat contemptuously to Jacob. And Jacob isn't always on board. But here at the end, we get a clue. Jacob's on board. Jacob understands that more important than his feelings about his desire to be buried next to Rachel, the one that he loved, instead, he will acquiesce to the line, here's what is being done through my grandfather And my father, and now me and my sons after me. I am part of a greater story. What's happened to me isn't all that's going to happen. I'm here for a brief moment, and then I pass away into the land of my fathers, and the story goes on. And the only one who sees it all from the very beginning to the very end is the Lord my God. He doesn't seem angry. He doesn't seem frustrated or stunted. He seems resolved. He's commanding it. This is what will happen. This is the Lord at work. And then, in I think what is one of the most beautiful lines in all of this, right? He drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. This is about his ancestors, not his immediate family in the room. Consider the beauty of that, that for 4,000 years, if this is written, say, around uh, events that occurred 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, right? Say 4,000 years now. What's been happening is that, is that faithful people have passed away and have been gathered to their people. Gathered to the saints whose lives were more than the years that they had here on the earth. Whose lives are in their souls with God in heaven forever and ever. They have been gathered to their people. Abraham was gathered to his people. And so was Isaac and now Jacob. Joseph will soon be gathered to his people. And when you die, should you die before I do? And we preside now over your funeral. And we sing all the hymns that you loved and read all of the passages that you loved and shared all the memories that they love about you. Then we will say, and now they are gathered to their people because this is the witness of the church that by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection that this is not all that there is when C.S. Lewis was asked by a compatriot of his do you think that we have a soul and he said you are a soul you have a body (laughs) this is not the end go on and on and on forever in one place or the next, but the great hope that comes exclusively through Jesus is that you may spend eternity with him and the Father empowered by the Spirit in heaven gathered to your people. There are some that we have lost. Some white-haired saints in this congregation who have gone before us. Some of them before I got here. Some after God will take me away. (laughs) Some by warning, (laughs) and in all of that, you know what we say? They were gathered to their people, and will be gathered to them. Will be gathered to them. They are our people, right? Well, starting in verse one of chapter fifty, we find the story continue. uh, Jacob has already laid out his plans. This is what I want done. Take me back to the land of my forefathers in Israel. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph has wept for joy, and now he weeps in sorrow. And Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father, and so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, this was not done in Israel in ancient times. Only the Egyptians, really, in the ancient Near Eastern world embalmed anybody. And uh, if you want to be the coolest person in your house, go home and tell your kids how they did that. Uh, You're going to need a knitting needle. And, uh, you know, if you get tested for COVID, it feels like this, but not quite, right? They stick it through. Anyway, cool story for another time. I think the reason why Joseph allows his father, who would not normally have been embalmed, to be embalmed, is because of the elaborate nature of taking them back to the land of their forefathers. It's going to take a long time. There's going to be a lot of procession involved. So we find here, starting in verse 3, "40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days." These two time periods probably overlap. "...and when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, "'If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, "'My father made me swear, saying, "'I'm about to die.'" in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Pharaoh, this is what my dad told me to do. So please let me go up and bury my father and then I'll come right back. And Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh. Think about that procession. The miles and miles and miles that they would journey with now thousands of servants as attendants, not to the great emperor over the Egyptian empire, but to Joseph's daddy, a sheepherder from Canaan. All of his household and all the elders in the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. I love that. They took everybody but the goats. (laughs) and they went up with him with both chariots and horsemen and in the understatement of chapter 50 here it was a very great company it was a big big group of people and when they came to the threshing floor of Atad which is beyond the Jordan they lamented there with very great and grievous lamentation and he made a mourning for his father seven days and we have no reason to question the genuineness of any of this mourning here is the father of the man who saved the entire known world through the providential hand of God we would weep for him as well. And when the inhabitants of the land, verse 11, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atah, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. See, even the pagan nations bear witness to the genuineness of the grieving. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. This is beyond the Jordan. It's the weeping of Egypt. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded him. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him there in the cave of the field of Machpelah in the east of Mamre, which Abram had bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. I love that. In verse 6, permission is granted, and the royal lament has begun for an Israelite (laughs) of all people. The great Old Testament commentator and scholar Rube says this in his commentary on Genesis. Jacob, who fought his way into life, departs just as dramatically. The life of Jacob, which is stretched over half the book of Genesis, has seen the family through moments of trust and betrayal, sterility and fertility, feast and famine, separation and reunion, and all within the promise and providence of God. A very great company, a royal caravan, proceeds to Canaan with no friction or no tension to bear witness to the faith of a man who through many years and many trials and many failures of his own schemes finally acquiesced to the will and the providence and the promise and the agenda of God, the God of his father, the God of Abraham, his grandfather. Well, the drama's not over. Uh, I love this. Uh, We've just come through, you know, uh, the Halloween season when I feel like every other channel is playing every horror movie you've ever seen, and there are all these tropes, right? And if you ever watch any horror movie, you know that something absolutely has to happen. We get to the very end. The bad guy is defeated, right? They have found him, and the protagonist, triumphant, turns their back just for a moment, and what happens? Ah, There is one gasp of life back in the bad guy and he comes lunging out of nowhere with his last fleeting ounces of strength to take one last stab at the hero and and they're finally caught at the very last moment, right? But that one last gasp happens all of these moves over and over and over. Well, here we go in chapter 50 now in the middle. We get one last gasp of drama. You think it's over. Jacob's been buried. The family has been reunited. Everything has reached its sweet conclusion. And then we hear from Joseph's brothers again. Oh, Joseph's brothers. Verse 15. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, maybe that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so instead of even going to Joseph and talking to him directly, uh, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did this evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, do you see what's happening here? Because it's a little slimy. 17 years they've lived in reunion 17 years ago God mended this family back together 17 years he eased all of their fears 17 years ago and the brothers are such chickens that the moment that Jacob is gone they go oh no maybe he was only nice to us because daddy was watching him right and he would have gotten in trouble if he had disobeyed our father and so they send a messenger they don't even go to him directly Send the boy along with a message. Hey, remember what daddy said? He said, no, no. He said, don't be mad at us. You're not allowed to be mad at us anymore. So don't, don't be mad. It's so juvenile, right? It's so immature. And it's absolutely devoid of any kind of faith. Now, look what happens here. Because Joseph is the weepiest person in the entirety of the Old Testament. He just cries and cries and cries and cries and cries. And I'm not saying he cries unjustified, but I'm just saying the man's got very large tear ducts and they are well lubricated and so here we see at the verse uh, end of 17 and now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the god of your father oh we're not just good guys we're not just your brothers we're not just we are servants of the god of your father (laughs) okay and joseph wept when they spoke to him now don't you get that I have never felt more sympathetic to a moment in Joseph's life when he wept, honestly. There is never a moment when, when he, bling. There is never a moment in Joseph's life when he wept when it was more justified. He has been honest. He has been open. He has been clear. He has been totally transparent. It's been raw. And they've been living together for 17 years not believing him, 17 years of distrust, 17 years of questioning the authenticity of their reunion. Can you imagine thinking that you were on really good terms with somebody relationally close for 20, basically 20 years, two decades, only to find out that all along they were afraid of you, that they didn't believe you? The rug's just been pulled out from under his feet. I would be livid, hurt, beat up, afraid. Some combination of those things. But I'm not Joseph. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph. Sweet words. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And then in one of the most important verses... And the entirety of the Christian canon. And I don't know how adept you are at memorizing Scripture. For some of you, it's probably easy, and for others of you, it's probably very, very difficult. But I'm telling you, go home this afternoon if you don't know this verse and start committing it to memory because you're going to need it one day. You may have already needed it and wished that you had it, but today's going to be the day that you put it in your head and in your heart. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil. There was hatred in your hearts. You were full of malice. That was your scheme, satanic and dark. You meant evil against me. Ah, this is calamity. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. You see, you were doing an evil thing, but there's an alternate history. There is a grander scheme. There is a more important storyline in history that's happening parallel to this one that you guys can't even see. You are so theologically illiterate that you don't view the world as sons and servants of God as you claim to be. Because if your minds were attuned to heavenly things, if you were calibrated to understand how this entire world is a theological field in which the plan and provision of God is worked out providentially, then you would know that there is nothing that you can do. There is no evil wrought by your hands. There is no malice in your heart that is not thwarted and overcome by the power and genius of the plan of God. what you meant for evil didn't matter because for all the pain that it brought in my life God was there he was there when you threw me in the pit he was there when you ripped off my cloak he was there the day you sold me he was there the day you lied to our father about my death and he's been there every day ever since he has always always been there Do you understand that this is true of your life as well? That there are times when people who will come into your life and try to execute evil plans for things to do disastrously wrong, demonic, evil things in your life who mean evil for you to bring calamity down on your house and on your heart? There are people like that. Have no fear God is equally providential now as he was 4,000 years ago God is equally sovereign and in control as he was 4,000 years ago God is equally genius at cultivating a plan to bring good things out of evil plans in your life as well and so he reiterates this in verse 21 so do not fear I'll provide for you and your little ones God's going to use me to take care of you. What's the expectation? How has it been subverted? The expectation was that you would bring calamity back as vengeance. And instead, through me, God will bring provision. There's an interesting juxtaposition here, right? God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And what Joseph says to his brothers here, though you have cursed me, still I will bless you. He's been given such great grace from God that he's able to do that. He has been loved so well so he can love in return. Uh, 1 John chapter 4. You should probably read that one as well this afternoon. You see, Joseph has a theological vision of the world. He understands that all the stuff is God stuff. All the occurrences are God occurrences. Everything that's happening in the world is God working according to God's providence and God's history. His entire worldview is saturated with the presence and the providence of God. Nothing happens that God is unaware of. Nothing happens that God is not involved in. No calamity, no good thing, no bad thing, nothing in between, no shade of gray, no black nor white. Nothing happens that God is not implicitly and explicitly involved in for the good of his people nothing now we can castigate the secular world all we want for their total abandon of the existence of God but there's a bunch of people and there may even be some in this room who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but are practically secularists and that they never acknowledge God's involvement in anything that happens in their lives it's important now For grandparents, it's important now for parents that as you build a home and as you fulfill your responsibility toward these little ones in this room, that you inculcate them with this truth God is in all things, God is behind all movements in history, God is working in all places, at all times, in every day for the good of those who love Him. We need to put on those theological glasses that allow us to see God in all of it. And Joseph sees God in all of it. His brothers, in contrast, seem blinded to that fact. Well, verse 22. He spoke kindly to them. He provides for them for generations on end. And then we find here the last days of Joseph. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. These are great, great, great grandkids, right? The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, now an old man. I don't know how many of them are still living. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Do you see there what's happening? Here's a man who's lived virtually all of his life in Egypt, and Egypt has been very, very good to him, right? Uh, Not only after some early trials in his late teenage and early 20s, not only in the calamities of those years, but then he was able to rise until he was the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire of the ancient Near Eastern world. And if you take a look back at the last few chapters, you find that everything that he asked of Pharaoh, Pharaoh eagerly advanced. All of it. All of it. He has had his children there. He's had his home there. His influence, his power, his wife is an Egyptian. Everything just about good that's ever happened to him has happened in the land of Egypt. And then what does he say at the very end? You remember how Jacob was so concerned to be buried next to Leah in fidelity to this story, this story of faith? That it came through Abraham and then Isaac and and, and now Jacob? Well, we see that same faith, the faith that says, you meant things for evil for me, but God meant them for good. Uh, uh, that kind of faith that's totally confident in God's interaction in history, that kind of faith is still being applied here because Joseph understands that he's a part of that story as well, the story that started before him, the story that will continue on long after him. He says, now I know, as it's been said before, I know that all of our people one day are going to be gathered together and brought back to the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham. I don't know when that day will be, but when that day comes, carry my bones back to Egypt. So we find here, so he was 110 years old. And they went ahead and embalmed, and they put his bones in a coffin. Now, it doesn't go to elaborate detail to say that he was put in a pyramid or buried in the valley of the pharaohs or because there's, there's a pregnant expectation here. There's a waiting. Joseph's dust and bones are waiting for what? until the day when God in his providence calls the entire nation out of Egypt and in the fleeting night when they could only grab a few things, bread that hadn't been leavened and they splashed the blood on the doorposts of their homes. Somebody's job is to remember to grab the dusty bones of Joseph because we're all headed home. thus concludes the story of Joseph. Literarily, it's one of the most important stories in human history. Believer, not believer, you'll finally, uh, hard to find a more beautiful narrative than what we've seen over the last few months here at Rocky Mountain Bible. But it's for the believer that the story takes on real life. Everything that we have talked about since the middle of March has been geared toward the same truth. Do you know this? In our study of John 17, we see that Jesus is praying for us in the midst of calamity. In Isaiah chapter 40, we find how we're strengthened and emboldened in the midst of calamity. In 2 Timothy, we talked about what it means for the church to live out faithfully its charge in the midst of calamity. And here in Joseph's life, We're trying to work and and gear ourselves so we understand what it means to be faithful, what it means to be obedient, what it means to be holy in the midst of calamity. And how God is working sovereignly and providentially behind the scenes, sometimes not so subtly, sometimes really obviously. Sometimes we're exposed to the obvious nature of the providence of God. I leave you at the end of this series with three truths and i would encourage you to write them down or think about them and maybe go home and argue why they're wrong or why they're right or find them in the scripture but i think that we get three truths that emerge of the life of joseph number 1 bad things are going to happen to you bad things are going to happen to you you understand that we live in a broken world that has been cursed as a result of the fall There will be tornadoes. There will be hurricanes. Of course, our friends in the Gulf have seen that repeatedly throughout the year. There will be earthquakes. There was an earthquake this morning just off the coast of Boston. There will be famines. There will be all kinds of untold calamities that will befall every person in this room because of the nature of how God has cursed this world following the fall. It rains on the just and the unjust. You understand? Bad things are going to happen to you. Bad people will try to do bad things to you. To hurt your body and hurt your mind and hurt your soul. One of the most foolish things I think that sometimes even mature believers do is that they come up on one of the great battles of their lives. Maybe you're fighting an illness or a disease. Maybe you're fighting a relationship that you know is toxic. Maybe you're fighting... Put the roof back on your home after winds have swept it away. And they've said this they've said this very foolish thing. I follow the God of Israel. This shouldn't be happening to me. And they start praying and they start saying really grievous things like, Lord, all I've ever done for you, and this is how you repay me. Don't I deserve more than this? And the subtle suggestion from heaven is no, you deserve far worse than this. And I have given you great, great many things. Bad things are going to happen to you. But there are some truths that bear out there. And this would be the second thing I think we learned from the life of Joseph. Bad things are happening to you, but God is providentially active. God is providentially active. I heard a phrase this week, and you may have heard this occasionally on the news. I love it when politicians perceive that they have been given a mandate. Our current Speaker of the House, for baffling reasons to me, understands that the election results uh, have given her a mandate. Okay. If you squint, turn your head, no, I still can't see it. Occasionally, this happens in the political realm or in the military realm. There is a mandate given. Here is the cry of the people to achieve a particular thing, and the government has set out to execute that thing. But occasionally, there's what's called an unfunded mandate, right? We have given you this extraordinary work to do, but we haven't actually allotted any money for you to do it. It seems like our hearts aren't actually in it because we haven't funded this task that we have given you to do. I'm a... Uh, send you out to the shed and tell you I need you to build me a birdhouse from whatever you find in there, but there's nothing in there, right? It's only until I send you to Lowe's with a gift card and give you a couple hundred bucks and the hammer and the nails and everything else that you can build, but it is that I have funded that mandate. A lot of people look at the world and see what believers have been called to do and what believers have been called to be and think about the prospect of being a person of faith and feel like it's an unfunded mandate God if you want me to be faithful if you want me to be obedient if you want me to be holy then how come you haven't given me the resources in order to do that very thing and God screams at us through the story of Joseph I am giving you what you need to be who I've called you to be now I have given you every believer in this room has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And and every believer in this room has access to the word of God. And every believer in this room knows that God is active providentially to bring them into completion and perfection to the kind of person that he wants them to be. I'm convinced of this very thing, that he is presently working in you and will bring you to where you need to be there at the day of Christ Jesus. And it's not that God has abandoned us or unfunded our faithfulness when calamities happen to us. Rather, the exact opposite, that every one of those calamities, every one of those tragedies, every one of those heart-wrenching diagnoses, every one of those broken relationships can and is being used by God to draw you closer to him. This is the wisdom that Joseph would share with you. Joseph let me ask you this 110 years later now newly arrived in heaven let me ask you would you at 17 years old have prayed for God to do what he did to you no no but but now Joseph as an old man would you go through all of the things that you went through to get to the place where God brought you and an unswerving confidence, I, I know for a fact Joseph would say, yes, I would relive every single day that God gave me exactly how he gave it to bring me where he wanted me to be. Bad things are going to happen to you. Don't embrace a bad theology that would help you to rationalize why they shouldn't. Secondly, you're going to need the kind of faith that God is providentially active to endure those bad times when they come, finally. And this, I think, is the most reassuring story that we learn in all of this. God is with you. God's with you you're having a really good day things are going well. you feel good your bank account is stable your relationships are healthy on that day God's with you He's working He's with you and then you have a bad day and you feel bad and your bones ache and your heart's broken and you feel like you don't have a friend on this earth and not a person could possibly relate to or understand what's going on inside your head and your heart and I'm telling you this on that day too God is with you he's working he's there beside you in fact it's one of the last promises that Jacob makes to his son Joseph Joseph don't you understand in the execution of the prophecy that I make over your life that God is with you. Sometimes a sermon gets away from me. Sometimes a series gets away from me. (laughs) Sometimes my my words get away from me and I lapse into a pretentious diction. So I want you to take just a beat while I say something really, really simple to you. You ready? Ready? God is with you, just like he was with Jacob. Just like he was with Joseph. He's with you. He was with you yesterday. He's with you today. He's going to be with you tomorrow. He's going to be with you on all the bad days. He's going to be with you on all the good days. And he's going to be with you on all the days in between. And if you will lean into that, lean into the good stuff, lean into the bad stuff, and rely wholly on the fact that he is there and he is working, and he is working for your good, then when we get to your last day, like Jacob's and like Joseph's, I know that your testimony will be exactly the same as theirs. God has always been there. Isn't he a good God who uses all these things to prove how close he is and to bring about the goodness that only he can conceive? Father, I pray this morning that we would be a people enveloped in our confidence, spirit-given, that you are near us and that you're working for our good, for your glory, and for an eternal hope a place of no suffering or pain, a place unafflicted by the temporal tragedies of this side of eternity, but one unstained by tears or death or pain. Let us relish and hope for that place made possible because of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.